Welcome to Poets and Writers. This is Henry McCarthy coming to you from the beautiful Emory and Henry College campus, WEHC 90.7. We've got a great show for you today. We have Ben Montgomery on, and Ben is uh, an excellent writer, has another new book out, and you heard him talk about, uh, uh, well, one previous one about a lady who walked the Appalachian Trail. So Ben is down in Tampa today. Ben, how are you? I'm doing very good, sir. Thanks for having me on. All right, now we're going to get right to it. We've talked to you before about where you're from, and I know that you were a reporter, have been a reporter down there. Talk a little bit about your reporting experience, and then we're going to get to your books. Sure. Well, I worked all over the place, starting in Russellville, Arkansas, and then moving to San Angelo, Texas, and then did a spell in uh, at a newspaper in upstate New York and came down here in 2005 to take a job at the Tampa Tribune. And then I joined the uh, what was then the St. Petersburg Times is now the Tampa Bay Times. And I left that job after 12 fantastic years uh, to focus primarily on books. But I took a job uh, very recently doing a newsletter for Axios, a new media company that's aiming to save local journalism. Well, I know that you're an outstanding journalist and investigative reporter. Talk a little bit about you, some of the writing that you did and some of the investigations you've done. Sure. I spent about 10 years working on a series of stories um, about the Dozier School for Boys, which was Florida's oldest and first uh, reform school. It was open from about 1900 to 2011 and closed because of uh, the diligent reporting of my colleagues at the Tampa Bay Times. Um, We exposed uh, decades of abuse and neglect at the school Interestingly, it was the that work was the basis for Colson Whitehead's latest, which was called The Nickel Boys and won the Pulitzer Prize for Fiction um, last year. Um, I did a th- about a three-year project trying to account for police shootings in the state of Florida and um, just find myself getting in trouble all over the place. You know, <laughs> well, you're very valuable, and one of my concerns, and and I think many in the public, is that we do not have as many of you out there keeping an eye on things, Ben. I think you're right, and that's worrisome to me, too. Um, You know, I think, you know, the the power of the press is an important thing, and um, there are a lot of legacy newspapers that haven't quite figured out a way to transition the money-making side of the business from print publications to online publications. So the sooner they get that figured out, the better, and uh, I think maybe the democracy is relying on it. Well, and I think you were uh, nominated for a Pulitzer, is that right? Or, or... Yes, sir. Uh, nominated, that was back in 2010, and right in the middle of all that Dozier School for Boys reporting. Mm-hmm. Well, you did some excellent work, because I remember reading about it and keeping up with it. We're talking with Ben Montgomery today here on Poets and Writers, WEHC 90.7, and so delighted to have him on here. And you folks over in Damascus, I know are enjoying this show very much. You always do, and want to say hi to the postman over there. So, Ben, let's talk about your latest book, a Shot in the Moonlight, How a Freed Slave and Confederate Soldier Fought for Justice in the Jim Crow South. All right, tell us a little bit about that book. It opens on a cold night in January of 1897 when a freed slave named George Denning, uh, who had spent the evening chopping wood and building a fire and eating dinner with his wife and children, uh, was tucked into bed late one night around midnight. About 25 
armed white men rode up to his house. Most of them were his neighbors. And uh, they stood outside in the yard, and they demanded he come out. And he didn't know who they were and, and heard in their voice that they were up to no good, and he refused to open his, the door of his little cabin. And uh, eventually they um, accused him of stealing some livestock from neighboring farms, and they gave him uh, the orders to abandon his property. And he was farming about 114 fertile acres in southern Kentucky, uh, which he owned outright, free and clear. He had bought from the man who had enslaved him. Uh, but they demanded he take his wife and kids and leave his property, and he refused. And somewhere in that consternation, uh, somebody started shooting into his house. He grabbed a rifle and started to make his way upstairs and got shot in the arm through a window as he ran upstairs. When he got to the top of the stairs, he threw open some shutters and saw the men below and leaned out just far enough to get grazed by a bullet in his forehead, but he squeezed off one shot, and uh, that shot of bird shot struck a 32-year-old scion of the wealthiest farm family in southwestern Kentucky, a guy named Jody Kahn, who fell dead right there in George Denning's yard. The mob retreated, and Denning fled from his house, and eventually uh, the next morning when he had learned he killed someone, he turned himself into the sheriff who secreted him off to Bowling Green and then on to Louisville for safekeeping because the mob was gathering back in Simpson County uh, looking, for, looking for Denning. In fact, they returned to his house, and they drove his wife and kids off uh, and set fire to his home and to his barn and to his fields. And eventually, um, Denning was brought to trial, was convicted of manslaughter, and, uh, and then uh, eventually pardoned by the progressive Republican governor of Kentucky. And this um, uh, was sensational. It was the first man in the South to ever be pardoned for killing a white man. And, uh, and so after he gets out of prison, he teams up with a Confederate soldier turned lawyer named Bennett Young, and they decided to bring a lawsuit for damages in federal court against the, the would-be lynch mob, the guys who were there to kill him that night. Well, Ben, talk a little bit about Bennett Young, because I think I was fascinated by that. And you folks out there around the valley and all across the country will really enjoy this. This is true. Uh, this is a, I suppose we would call it a historical novel. And uh, talk a little bit about Bennett Young, who was the Confederate soldier turned lawyer who defended him. Young was a fascinating character. He signed up for the war when he was 16 or 17 years old, uh, right, right at the outset of the Civil War, uh, was a true son of the South. He had grown up um, the son of a wealthy businessman in Jessamine, Kentucky. And, uh, uh, you know, a business, his father owned slaves. So, uh, anyhow, during the war, he rode with Morgan's men on those raids from Kentucky into Ohio and Indiana, and eventually got captured and spent some time in Camp Douglas outside of Chicago. And upon escaping from Camp Douglas, he convinced some Confederate comrades to follow him up to Canada. And he led a raid from a Confederate raid from Canada down into um, New Albans, Vermont, a small town in Vermont. And uh, he and his pals held the town folk hostage for about 24 hours before uh, 
riding out of town was somewhere in the neighborhood of $250,000. And the whole effort was to get the North to turn its attention um, to the Canadian border. Uh, and it didn't really work, but uh, after the raid, he uh, spent a few years, after the war ended, he spent a few years in Europe waiting for waiting to be granted amnesty to return to the United States. And during that time, he got a law degree. So by the time he came back to Kentucky and to Louisville, uh, he began um, taking on pro bono cases of black men and women who needed access to the federal court. Beyond that, he helped found an orphanage for black children. And, uh, and in the last part of his life, after the war, he, he spent no small amount of time doing two things. One, helping people of color, both in court and, and uh, elsewhere, in schools and, and through this orphanage. And then beyond that, he helped build more than probably any of his contemporaries the uh, the idea of the lost cause, uh, the the chivalry of the Southern soldier. And so he spent no small amount of time raising money for Confederate statuaries and memorials, uh, delivering keynote speeches at the unveilings of those statues, including one in Charleston and one in New Orleans. Um, he raised uh, the biggest chunk of the money to build the Jefferson Davis Monument, which is a large, uh, tall, uh, uh, phallic monument in western Kentucky. Um, Mm -hmm. So you get this really interesting and and conflicted legacy of this guy. Um, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. These very different things. But, you know, he gives you, uh, and and given current times and thinking about the courts, he gives you... um, he gives you a good uh, feeling about uh, lawyers, and and my reading of it is he stood on principle. Here he was; he clung, he kept to his southern beliefs. You would say. At the same yeah. time, he transcended it. He defends this slave and uh, defends him several times. And talk. And, and I know this is all in his book, and folks are going to want to read it. You've got the the court documentation and so on. And so yeah. he, here he is, and it was certainly not popular. And of course, we know within this was in the 1890s, correct? Am I That's right? right. Okay. And but we know that lynching was occurring and did occur, and uh, right. they were attempting to break into the jail uh, to lynch him. Um, and yet here is this Southern lawyer who who had been in Europe. I find that interesting that he'd been mm-hmm. here, got a law degree, but he comes back and says, this is the right thing to do, right, Ben? He says, how does that work? He, that, that's exactly right. He, at some point, and this, is, this may be lost to history, I certainly couldn't find much about it in his personal records, but at some point he had a, a change of heart. Maybe it was just the end of the war and recognizing that uh, slavery was, in fact, the, the wrong track for this country. Uh, but he has a change of heart, and when he gets back to the U.S., he, is, uh, he becomes very involved in rewriting the Kentucky Constitution and makes it a point to mention that slavery is a thing of the past and that Kentucky shouldn't try to cling to those old ideas. And so you see him moving away from that idea and toward a more progressive approach to culture. And this included uh, things, as I mentioned, like, like founding the Orphanage for Black Children, for helping um, raise money to preserve the free library in, in Louisville, which provided educational access to people of all colors, 
and uh, to representing black men and women in federal court. And often it was a case uh, for black folks in the South that sometimes the only relief they could get, the only justice they could find was through the federal court system. And well, so uh, Benny Young proved useful in terms of helping them along in that regard. At the same time, he was going ahead and building uh, statues in memory of the Confederate soldiers. Correct? Right. Right. And, right. And, 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 no, I say this because I, I love history, and I yeah. love the, um, shall we say, the existential part of history and how we interpret it as just sort of a plain uniform, you know, um, almost dogma sure. at times. And here he is, this complexity of there he was, a lawyer who, who did the right thing, and at the same time he had allegiance to his lost cause, right? That's exactly right. And, you know, with the hindsight of 150 years, 160 years, we see where we were wrong, right? Um, but the folks who were alive in the 1860s and who had dedicated themselves to fighting for the South uh, some of them, you know, truly believe that this was an issue of states' rights. And uh, the, the, the conflict of uh, slavery was not quite as clear then as it was today. It was interesting in the research I found an editorial that was written in the New York Times in 1964 as the Civil War raged. And this editorial said that there will come a day in the distant future when we regard slavery as uh, a barbaric thing of the past in the way that we now view gladiatorial Rome. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and the editorial went on to say, the men of politics today won't be judged for the you know, haranguing that they're doing about the smaller issues. They will all be, in that cleansing light of history, they will all be viewed and judged on how they came down on that the one central issue of morality of our time, which is slavery. Absolutely, yes. And, and so, um, you know, it's, it's crystal clear mm-hmm. to us now, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it may not have been at the time, and, mm-hmm. and, uh, and I think Young personifies the acknowledgement of that conflicted man of the 1800s who felt like what he was doing was right, right. had a change of heart after the war, recognized the wrongness of that, and dedicated his life to um, not only helping uh, people of color, but also mm-hmm. to m- memorializing the guys who fought and died for the South. Oh, do you have, um, you don't have to do this, but do you have, we're, I'm watching the clock here, Ben, as we move along, and do you have a little brief passage you'd like to read for us today? Sure, I'd love okay, to. Go, yeah. go for it. How about if I just start at the beginning, and I'll, uh, I'll, I'll give you a couple of minutes here. Great. January 21st, 1897. When the guns fell silent and the white men took cover, George Denning burst out the back of his little wooden house, wearing only his undergarments. He ran through the frigid January air, and when he reached the tall grass of a nearby field, he hurled himself down flat on his back, his lungs heaving, his breath visible and rising beneath the moon almost full, and what seemed to be a million stars poking through a smoky blue-black midnight sky. He lay still and quiet and listened to the men's voices coming from the north, beyond the house. They sounded at first as though they were in a state of consternation, but the voices grew distant as time slid by, suggesting retreat. When he could no longer hear the voices over the heartbeat in his own ears, he sat up slowly, looked around, then darted across the field toward his house. His wife met him at the door with his boots, 
his heavy coat and his hat, and he dressed quickly without saying much, then turned away from the humble home he had built with his own hands, the only home his children had ever known, the home he had defended, and he disappeared into the darkness. Absolutely beautiful, yes. Uh, folks, pick up a copy of it. At, uh, I got this one. This was Barnes & Noble, A Shot in the Moonlight by Ben Montgomery here on Poets and Writers, WEHC 90.7 today. Ben, talk a little bit about the governor because he was a Republican uh, back then. Um, they were Lincoln Republicans, correct? Yes, sir, that's right. His name was Bill O'Bradley, William O'Bradley, and uh, they called him Bill O'Bradley, and he was a rotund, um, uh, charismatic, uh, progressive governor. There was this interesting short-lived period of progressive Republican governors taking, uh, to sort of sweeping across the South, those Lincoln Republicans, and he fit that mold um, and uh, had ridden the black vote into office and kept his promise to the black community to appoint uh, men and women to positions of authority in the state government um, to give everyone a fair shake. And uh, in this case, uh, he took the call, he took the, the threat of a lynch uh, mob attacking and killing George Denning very seriously. And so um, you see him take steps all along the way from George Denning turning himself in uh, to the movement from jail to jail to keep him safe, uh, eventually to the you know, the governor ordered the dispatching of two outfits of soldiers, of home guard, to show up at his trial to provide protection for George Denning. And uh, in the midst of all that, he successfully passed um, state legislation that uh, aimed to prevent lynching by holding accountable local sheriffs and jailers who might otherwise, you know, just offer up the keys to the jailhouse, to the lynch mob. Mm -hmm. He made it uh, a finable offense if, uh, you know, if they just kowtowed like that to their to their friends who were members of the lynch mob. Uh, beyond that, he made it um, such that uh, if you did that, then uh, you couldn't hold public office again. You had to relinquish your role, and you couldn't ever hold public office again. Mm -hmm. So uh, these were all efforts to stop lynching in the state of Kentucky, and it was pretty rare in the South to see that kind of anti-lynching legislation, but he successfully passed it. Um, and, you know, made a mark on uh, on the state of Kentucky for a couple of things, but that primarily. Yeah, well, and there were, and you, as your book brings out, and it's excellent research, and it brings out the number of lynchings uh, that were going on in the South and were going on in Kentucky uh, during this period. Talk a little bit about the number of lynchings. Well, it was like, uh, it was like clockwork, um, the, you know, lynchings were after the war and, and really at the tail end of Reconstruction when the Freedmen's Bureau began to disappear. Uh, the Freedmen's Bureau was established after the war, of course, to help black men and women sort of who had been emancipated to join civil society and to get them jobs and in some cases land and in some cases access to the state court system. And so after the Freedmen's Bureaus began to close when there was no longer a pressing need for them, um, there came a wave of anti-black violence from, from white lynch mobs. And this was a, a regular occurrence in the South, and it became the, the sort of thorn in the side of, of governors like Bill O'Bradley, who saw that the effect of this kind of violence 
played negatively across the whole state. It played, it was, it was negative economically. It was negative for tourism. It was negative for, um, culture. Um, it painted because the case, this case, the Denning case was covered by newspapers across the country. Uh, if, if, if violence had, uh, occurred again to George Denning, it would have had a severely negative impact on how people viewed the state of Kentucky. So, um, and so he, he saw fit to try to put a stop to this in, in any way he could. Well, this is fascinating, and we're talking with Ben Montgomery today. Uh, I'm going to say the brilliant Ben Montgomery because it's a heck of a book, and he's a heck of a writer. And it's a shot in the moonlight, how a freed slave and a Confederate soldier fought for justice in the Jim Crow South. And I'll tell you, it, uh, it gives you some good insight and gives you some courage about doing the right thing. Ben, as we move along today, I want you to briefly mention your other books now. And, of course, the one about the Appalachian Trail up here. Just mention your other books here briefly for us. My, my most recent, after, uh, before this one, was called A Man Who Walked Backward, about a crazy Texan who tried to walk backward around the world in 1931 at the front end of the Great Depression. He was trying to get rich and famous, and he almost made it. Uh, just before that was a book called, uh, the leper spy. And it was about a woman who, these are all true stories about a woman who served as a spy for the United States during world war two in her home country of, um, the Philippine islands. And, uh, she was good at her spy work because she had leprosy and the Japanese were, who occupied the Philippine islands were, um, sort of culturally horrified of contagious disease. And so she was allowed to, um, uh, you know, carry messages and uh, pretty much walk freely uh, around Manila. And then the first book was uh, Grandma Gatewood's Walk, and that's mm-hmm. that's the one that I think of as a, you know by far the most successful in my books. It's the story of uh, Emma Gatewood, who in 1955, at the age of 67 years old, decided that she would through hike the Appalachian Trail, and she set off from uh, Mount Oglethorpe in Georgia and uh, finished 145 days later at Mount Katahdin in Maine, becoming the first woman to achieve that uh, feat. And then she kept on walking. She became the first person to ever walk the entire AT twice and the first person to ever uh, hike it three times and had some great experiences there in Damascus, Virginia. I heard you mention Damascus earlier. She, She made a lot of friends there. Well, absolutely, and you know, I've been in the Damascus Library and a number of other places around here, and I will see that book, and I think of you every time, and wasn't she, just uh, briefly, was she a distant relative of yours? How did you happen to come to write that book? Yes, sir, she was my uh, great aunt, so my mother's, I'm sorry, she's my great, great aunt, my mother's great aunt, Uh, and she died in 73 and I wasn't born until 78. So we missed each other by about five years. But, um, I came to this story when four of her 11 children were still alive. That sadly is down to two now, but, um, they helped, uh, fill in all the blanks and get me a bunch of, uh, her personal records. And, um, so that was a, a really fun uh, story to stitch together and, and to try to solidify her legacy, at least when it comes to, um, uh, you know, hiking and the outdoors and the Appalachian Trail. 
Well, I think the fascinating thing to me, among other aspects of that book and about her, was what she walked in. And, you know, we think of hikers getting the best shoes. And then she had an umbrella. And, uh, you know, she didn't. I mean, it's just fascinating. She was so nonchalant, if you want to say, about how she did it. Now, this woman was one tough lady, correct? That's right. She, uh, you know, I've spent um, the past two summers on the AT with my kids, and every time we go, boy, we, you know, pack the very best gear. It's all lightweight and super expensive and uh, have little stoves that could fit in the palm of your hand but heat up a meal in two minutes, you know, and she had none of that stuff. She didn't bring a tent. She didn't bring a sleeping bag. Um, she basically carried a denim drawstring sack that she slung over her shoulder that <laughs> included an army blanket and a shower curtain to keep the rain off. And um, you're right about her footwear. She preferred canvas sneakers. So she sometimes wore Keds and sometimes wore, um, you know, canvas Converse so that her she had really bad bunions. So she needed some flexibility in her shoes. Um, and she blew through, I think, seven yeah. pairs of shoes on that first 2,100-mile uh, journey. So, yeah, she is still storied today. People still talk about her on the AT. And, well, you, um, you've certainly done a lot and written a lot, and you are now with a news agency, an independent uh, news writing agency, correct? Yes, sir. Axios uh, okay. started in uh, Washington, D.C. in 2017, and it aims to... Um, bring people the news they need in quick fashion. Uh, there's a family of newsletters that cover topics ranging from space to politics to the, the markets. Um, and my responsibility right now is writing a local newsletter. This is a brand new product for them Down there. Uh, that aims to aims to mm -hmm. talk to people directly in the Tampa Bay area five days a week. Absolutely. Tell folks how they can get in touch with you, Ben Montgomery. Well, you can look me up on uh, Twitter at Gangrey, G-A-N-G-R-E-Y, or uh, on Facebook at facebook.com slash author Ben Montgomery, um, and uh, Instagram at Ben underscore rights. And I'd be happy to hear from you in any one of those platforms. Well, that is fascinating, Ben Montgomery. Thank you for coming again on the show today and talking with us about A Shot in the Moonlight. We wish you the best down there, and when you're up this way, come up. Now, you're hiking Appalachian Trail. you got to drop by the station here, WEHC 90.7, and this is Henry McCarthy saying, do not wait up for me. I'm going out to write a poem and watch the children play. Thanks for listening, and thank you, Ben Montgomery.